It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be introducing our guest speaker this morning. Martin Charlesworth uh, is based up in Shrewsbury. He's married. Uh, he's got three grown-up daughters. He used to lead uh, what's known as Barnabas Community Church. Uh, it's uh, part of the family of churches that uh, we belong to. But Martin has, in recent years, uh, handed over leadership of the church, and he's heavily involved uh, with social action, and he now leads Jubilee Plus, and it's an organization with a vision to see the church in the UK be a champion for the poor. And uh, he, uh, the organization seeks to bring about healthy community. It's all about transformation, transformation, transforming our community with the gospel of Jesus. And uh, Martin is also uh, an author of uh, several books. Um, he's uh, written a book uh, which we've recommended before, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, which he co-authored with Natalie Williams, who's spoken here uh, uh, a year or so ago, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. And he's also just written, it's come out in recent months, A Church for the Poor. Again, great book. I would recommend both to you. Uh, we are selling. We have copies to sell on the front desk on your way out. So if you're interested in getting hold of a copy, make sure you do. On a personal level, I want to say uh, Martin is one of those people. He's always interested in you. I've been in meetings with people who are very busy, um, very important, and uh, felt uh, like a fish out of water on occasions. And I always remember Martin being one of those people who would find time to come and talk to me and make me feel welcome. So it's my joy to make him feel welcome amongst us. Let's do that. Let's give him a big Winchester welcome. Martin Charlesworth. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here. So, after leading a church for many years, suddenly I felt called to set aside the senior role because some greater or more significant personal calling had come to me, which was a real concern from God, I believe, that the church in our generation should seize the opportunity of our times and become a, a great agent of change in challenging times. And so I now work part-time for an organization called Jubilee Plus. Let me give you three snapshots from this week. Tuesday was the budget. Some of you will have noticed. Some of you have been happy, some of you not so happy. But Jubilee Plus had been lobbying the government directly for changes in the rollout of universal credit to help those people who were stuck in that gap. Some of the things we'd lobbied them for were enacted, some of them weren't. On that day, my colleague Natalie had two articles published in national media, The New Statesman and The Independent, referencing the work of Jubilee Plus. That was Tuesday. Wednesday, I was in my local church, and I help as a, as a mentor for a life skills course we run in association with our food bank, because we noticed that the greatest challenge in life for many people who are struggling is confidence to engage with society effectively. And no amount of government programs are ever going to resolve that. But the church 
is in a primary position. So on a Wednesday when I'm free, I help with a woodworking project. By the way, I don't know anything about woodworking, but it doesn't seem to matter too much. <laughs> and we're getting alongside the clients, um, guys who've lost their jobs, lost their identity, lost confidence, talking to them, relating to them. And I do that on a Wednesday when I'm at home. That's my job. I'm working in a team. And the guy I work for is a woodworker or work with is a woodworking teacher retired. But he actually came to our church because he had a financial crisis as a non-Christian. And then his wife died suddenly and he couldn't afford the funeral. And he came to our money advice team and asked for help. They gave him help and he was invited to the Alpha course. He became a believer. He was baptized. He's now a member and now he's helping the next person. And he's my teacher because he's a woodwork teacher and puts me straight. That was Wednesday. Thursday I was in Liverpool because I work with a, an organization in one of the poorest boroughs in the whole of the UK, Nosley Borough in Liverpool. A big project, church-based, which provides food bank, money advice, life skills, and all sorts of other things. And I met the whole team of workers. I go there once a year and do a bit of help for them. Where people in some of the very poorest parts of our country are facing such fundamental problems to engage with benefits, to get jobs, to rebuild their community, and Christians are there on the front line. So that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's national government lobbying, articles in the media, my own church, and traveling to different parts of the country, which I have the privilege to do, and to see the incredible energy that God is giving to his people. And even as I'm talking today, it may be that the Holy Spirit will begin to stir in you fresh steps that your church might be taking alongside the excellent things you're doing already with CAP in order to reach out to your own community. I could tell you a lot about our team, but I think I'm going to give that a miss. There they are. Um, you probably rec recognize Natalie Williams at the front, my co-author, and uh, who does a lot of speaking for us. I want to talk to you this morning about four contexts that we need to bring together in our thinking in order to engage with this issue. The first context is our nation. What is going on in our nation in terms of social justice and in terms of wealth and poverty and deprivation. What is the general situation? In a nutshell, it can easily be described. The divide between those who have and have not is still, generally speaking, growing. But the critical issue that has come upon us in the last decade, like a great, huge train coming into the station, is that our government in our public policy capacity through finances is no longer able to service the welfare state that we built so assiduously over several decades. There's no longer the will and there's probably no longer the finance. 
Something is changing in our country, and I don't think it's going to be reversed in the foreseeable future. And it's not a political statement, and it doesn't really matter who's in power. The same realities are still there for everybody. And I've spoken to chief executives of local councils. I've spoken to politicians. I've spoken to my own MP. I've spoken to service providers in the social sector, people I know, friends I have, and the message almost universally from every quarter, non-Christian, believer, whoever they are, is we're, we're in a slowdown, we're in a meltdown of our public services, pressure is there everywhere, and you're aware of this generally, but I want to, what I want to say to you is it ain't going to go away in a hurry. And the impact of that This is not a political statement, by the way. I'm just talking economics. The impact of it is hardly noticed by some people because they're in steady jobs and steady incomes. They hardly notice what's going on around them. But the impact for people who are vulnerable economically in our country, generally speaking, is getting more severe all the time because of the complex process that's going on around them to do with the health service, education, benefits, housing, local authority capacity, social care, wherever you look, you see the same picture. So that's our national context, generically. That's a generalization. It's variable in different areas. But I'm not a pessimist. And I'm not a politician. I'm an activist. And I believe in the church. And I believe in what the scriptures tell us. And I believe we have an incredible opportunity in the next decades in our country in more ways than we've ever imagined to say, okay, these things are happening. And there are other factors to do with the social breakdown, which I haven't mentioned. We haven't got time to go into that. It's not just about economics. I understand that. But economics is driving certain things, and it's driving it fast. And no one can turn it around. But we have a great opportunity. So my second context is, obviously, foundationally, the scriptures. Yes, I believe in the local church. I believe in what God is doing by his Holy Spirit in building strong and vibrant churches right across our country. I've seen it throughout the whole of my lifetime. I'm now in my late 50s and I've seen God working and there have been a few bumps on the road but the general trajectory is he's building something of substance and of power and significance and for for a great purpose, and we can characterize it as revival, and we can have that narrative if we like. But can I just tell you about revival? Revival in the UK, historically, in almost every situation, has occurred primarily in the interface between the church and the poor. Easily forgotten. And that's probably what will happen again. In Galatians 2... Paul, I'll read you from verse 1 through to verse 10. It's a famous passage. 
And I only want to bring out one thing, and I only want to emphasize one thing because of time and the topic we have. There's many important things in this passage. But Paul, the historical background is very clear. Paul and Barnabas and co, they're off on their Gentile mission. They're going to all these Greek and Roman cities, planting churches. Peter uh, and his friends are based in Jerusalem, and they're planting churches as well, but it's in a much smaller geographical area, which we call Judea. We see it in Acts 9. The narrative is there. They're planting loads of churches amongst Jews, Messianic believers. Paul is over in the Gentile world, planting churches amongst all sorts of different people groups. Some people have come in between them and said, hey, Paul isn't saying the right thing. Peter, you ought to disqualify him. And they were trying to divide the church um, because of these two different cultural contexts. And Paul was worried about this. So he said, okay, I better go and meet Peter. We better have a meeting to absolutely consolidate what we're doing. Make sure we're all on the same track. That's the context. Then after 14 years, <coughs> I went up again <coughs> to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, i.e. the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, Peter, and John Those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace God had given to me. They agreed we should go to all the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, so far, so good. But there's a sudden surprise at the end of the passage. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing that I've been eager to do all along. Now, what's all that about? So Peter and Paul, they talked through their doctrine and their different cultural contexts, and Peter said, it sounds like everything's okay. You're preaching the same doctrine. It's the same atonement. It's the same Christ. It's the same ethics. It's the same doctrine of the church. Same belief on baptism. Great. Right hand of fellowship. You carry on. We're here with the Jews. You're there with the Gentiles. Let's carry on. But... Just one thing. Don't forget the poor. Now, why would Peter say that? That's the great question. I think the answer is this. Amongst the Jewish believers in Judea and Jerusalem and around there who had the Old Testament and a background in the knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Israel, they knew in their bones that their God, Yahweh, cared for the poor because they saw it in the Old Testament and they saw it in the prophets. 
And it wasn't difficult for the apostles to say, when we're planting churches, we reach out to the poor and the needy. But when Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, they didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have a knowledge of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They didn't have any culture, really, of charity in Greek and Roman culture. Hardly at all charity as we would know it, secular charity. And so unless Paul prioritized mercy ministry and caring for the poor amongst the Gentiles, the Gentile churches would end up looking very different over here than the Jewish churches over here. And for Peter, that wasn't acceptable. Does that make sense to you? Now that's a very, very profound insight to me. And when you consider that sociologically, in those cultures, 50% of the citizens in any city that Paul was reaching would be living on the margins or below. In terms of sociological history, that's what they tell us. This is a big deal. And so we find out from this text that if we aspire to reflect the biblical values of church, as your leaders do here and as I do, I'm sure the Spirit would say to us, as Peter said to Paul, remember the poor in all you do. Would you agree? Yes. It's a natural, logical application of that text. Now, we could, we could have a hundred different ways of emphasizing the same truth from the Scriptures. I just give you one because I want to anchor what I say to you in the text of scripture national context biblical context third context prophetic context you believe in the prophetic message of God as a dynamic in the local church yes Scripture is supreme. Prophecy shapes our application. So as I've been leading the Jubilee Plus team, I've encountered a number of prophetic people helping us. And their message to me consistently has been, prepare for the future, don't just look at the present. And when I think of the future, I think of what I said earlier on. I think of social and economic vulnerability and shaking which is impending in our nation because of financial constraints if nothing else. So I'm motivated as I travel around and as I come to a church like this by a vision of the future where I see great challenges and even greater opportunities. For the body of Christ. But we have to be ready. Joseph had a dream. And he went to Pharaoh. To, uh, sorry, Pharaoh had a dream and Joseph came and interpreted it. And he said to the king of Egypt, it's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. You've got to prepare in the seven years of plenty for the seven years of of famine. Now, I'm not using this as a literal prophecy, but time and again people have said to me, remember Joseph. Yes. 
And what Joseph did was he prepared for things that were, no long, were not currently evident. So as you live your normal life, you might think, well, things are ticking over normally in our nation. I'm okay. Things are going okay. Our church is doing well. Our town's doing generally well. And maybe those things are true. And they were true in Egypt because the harvest was coming in pretty plentifully. But there was a prophetic direction from God to the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph, which was prepare Use what you have now to prepare for when the resources will be less. And I believe that that's what God is calling our church to do in the nation, is to prepare more strategically for things that may happen in our nation. My fourth context, the local church. That's not you, by the way. just off the internet. It's the local church which is the key, isn't it? The local church has the energy, the structure, the vision, the foundations to do incredible things uh, in our nation. And so what is beginning to happen in our country is that more and more churches are asking more searching questions about what is going on in our community and what is God calling us to do about what's going on in our community. I'll give you an example from a city I visited not so long ago and I I, I preached in the church and at the end I met with some leaders and activists and they said, by the way, we've discovered a a huge... uh, um, There's a huge trafficking, human trafficking issue going on in our community because of some transit routes that are going through our area and they decided that God was calling them to address that issue in that community. And so I believe, personally, as I'm just listening to this morning's um, uh, uh, service and, and what you're saying about CAP, I genuinely believe in my spirit and I submit this to you that God may be calling your church to... to to, to some specific initiatives, caring for the poor that go beyond what you're currently doing. You might be moving in other directions on top of the excellent work that you're doing and to really listen to the Lord to know what those directions might be. And there might even be people here this morning who feel a sense of calling to something that hasn't yet really been articulated. You haven't really spoken to someone, but God has really put something in your heart that you feel that the church might get involved with. Well, I want to encourage you, however tentatively you feel, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, is to begin to identify that journey and begin to start thinking about it and talking to some of the leaders about it. At the first national conference we had seven years ago, a guy came who was really interested in housing projects, and he met someone at our conference. And seven years later, um, I went to Wolverhampton, where he is now, and he has seven houses for refugees and homeless. And he said it all started at that moment. God gave an idea. I get letters from people constantly saying, God has given me an idea of something that we can do in our community. A lady wrote to me recently from, from another city, and I've got the email here, but I won't give you all the details, some of them 
Um, I, I'm not sure I should be sharing publicly, but uh, this lady said that she had a real burden for the, the women in, that she saw near, near their church in their particular urban location involved in prostitution, and she decided to start a, um, a beauty therapy business and to involve some of them in it, both as recipients and then as those who were delivering this little small business for other people around, and gradually they just came out of prostitution gave them a business and gave them a lifeline and they just moved out. And so all the way up and down the country, God is stirring the church into action. And we want to really proclaim clearly that social engagement is not a separate thing for specialists and it's not something that should happen outside the church. It's part of what the church is called to do because that's what Peter said to Paul. <laughs> Paul, wherever those people are, they need to look around their communities and reach out in mercy to those who are in need. And of course, Paul was keen to do that. And that's exactly what they did. So we are at a very, very interesting time in the history of our nation, in the history of the church. Many possibilities exist. And even in the last decade, there's been a fundamental cultural change uh, concerning, for example, the food bank movement. Now, even 10 years ago, you couldn't predict that food banks would have swept the nations and church would be at the forefront of it. You couldn't, I could not have predicted that 10 years ago. Now, other things might sweep the nation that the church does that have hardly started as I'm speaking today. I believe that will happen. And by the way, food banks provide one of the most amazing opportunities to not just help in crisis, but to help strategically. So many people are building onto food banks other strategic resources, making hubs, life skills, job clubs, debt advice, and many other things. It's a trend that's developing in the nation, and it's going to be an important trend. So God is at work through his church. And your church has positioned itself on this trajectory. Your leaders are communicating that to me. That's why they've invited me here. That's why CAP, you're in your strategic partnership with CAP, which I think is great. As I travel around, I believe there are three different things, that, three different benefits that come to a church that's really focused on its social engagement. And the first one should not be underestimated. God genuinely blesses those who care for the poorest. And his blessing comes to the church sometimes in unexpected ways. What I've, what I've noticed is that people think, well, how many people you're helping on Food Bank have joined the church? You know, that that's the only question you need to ask of any particular project. But I don't think it is the only question you need to ask. We found in our own local church that the, the blessing of God in terms of unexpected financial provision, um, uh, People joining our church from other areas because they know of our social projects when they come into the area and all sorts of other senses have been very, very remarkable. And, not least, 
the impact of the church in an area. So one of the trajectories that I believe God wants for the church in, in the UK is that for churches like yours to become really well-known in their communities. And there are many ways we can do that. There isn't just one. And maybe you are really well-known. But that is the trajectory from the invisible house church movement to the established uh, new church movements which has resources and size and numbers and people and impact. This is an incredible story, and this has a long way to go. But I've noticed, for example, in my own town, in other places where I've seen churches engaged, the, the interest of people, secular people, is rising. Now, some secular people don't like what the church is doing. They want to dismiss it and exclude it. That is always going to be the case. But many people have their own unanswered questions about the meaning of life and the, the future of society. And increasingly, we can answer some of those questions. And so the impact grows. I was at a meeting with our local authority recently, a consultation about benefits, and one of our food bank managers was the, one of the speakers with all the charities and so on, uh, and a lot of big, big talks from different people. But it was really interesting talking to one of the senior council officers who had just given us a grant, and he said, yeah, I can see what you're doing. No one else is doing what you're doing. Secular guy. And people are going to come to Christ in increasing numbers in more socially diverse ways. So one of the great trajectories of the church is to build church communities where people in different social groups feel increasingly comfortable together. And that's a journey that we're on. We haven't got to the destination there. And that's another talk, and I'm not going to start on it now. You'll be glad to know. But I've written quite a lot about it with Natalie, so you can read it in the books. So I just want to encourage you. You are on a directory, a direction which will incur the blessing and the favor of God. I believe there are going to be some specific things your church will be called to, unique to the Winchester area and your demographic and people you relate to. There may not be any of the things I've mentioned. And you need to seek and find those things. But I want to encourage you. This day is about CAP to one degree. But behind that, there's a much bigger picture that goes way beyond CAP and their excellent work. It's reaching up to really fulfill the biblical mandate for the church that comes right from the apostles in the New Testament. And we're inching our way towards it. And I want to encourage you to continue on that journey. Let's stand together. Can I have the musicians? Let's just have a moment just before the Lord. Let's keep our focus on his presence. The meeting is certainly not over. Some of the most important things of the meeting may happen in the next couple of minutes because God may begin to speak to you or stir you up in certain ways. 
We'll sing in a moment. But let's just pause. And I sense the Lord is encouraging me to be very, very specific with you. And Steve's given me the permission to do this. If you sense a particular calling in this area to be a worker, to pray, to be a leader, some, some initiative that God's put in your heart, some burden, you think, hey, that's me. I, I really feel connected to that, to that, that preacher and, and the story. Then in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and just stand here. It may just be half a dozen people. I don't really care. And if you're in the balcony, it applies to you. So when I, when I say please move really quickly, because I, I have faith, I really do have faith, that as God has given me this message, as I pray over people, then it stirs life. The Holy Spirit is beginning to move. So if you just sense, oh yeah, there's, there's something for me, it's something I want to do, even if it's not happening at all or a dream you've had, can you just come and step forward? Do you want to be a worker or, or, or a helper. There's just a few people coming. Let's just let's just give it give it a moment. And you may think it's something to do with my job that I can use some skills I've got. Don't know what it, it may be. It's just spread out across the front. I'm not going to pray for people individually. Uh, there'll be a ministry team available which Steve will direct if that's appropriate but this is a moment of self-identification I'll just give a little bit more moment because one or two are coming down the stairs there in the congregation can you pray for these as I do please you know some of these people standing here you may know what they're thinking you may not Father we thank you for the wonderful salvation we've experienced we thank you for the wonderful blessings you put in our lives we thank you for the privilege it is to be part of a church like this that seeks to follow you wholeheartedly. Thank you for the blessings you give in our lives. But Lord, I thank you that you put in the DNA of the church a heart for the poor and for the people who've missed out, lost out, been crushed. And Father, I thank you that heart is rising in this church. And I pray for every single person gathered here this, uh, in the front this morning. Lord, you will confirm, activate, energize senses of calling that they have. Father, we pray that even from this morning will come new ministries in the church, new impact through workplaces. Father, that you will take this church to another level. That you may be glorified and more people may find your son, Father, be saved and your kingdom advance here in Winchester, in this area, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Let's sing together.
free to stay at the front if you want, or go back to your seat. You can do either. Do feel free to stay. There's no rush to go. Our final song as we come back into worship as the musicians lead us now.